technology and the economy. But what's unique is that the questioning is now coming from within. And in fact, some of the political outcomes within our countries are far more damaging to the international liberal order than anything that is happening at the borders of that order. Speaker Pelosi's Taiwan visit. Of course, there was quite heated debate and a range of viewpoints, as you'd expect to see in a democracy, as to whether Speaker Pelosi's visit was important as a demonstration of support and solidarity with Taiwan. Right-wing extremism in Australia. But if you say right-wing extremism, they understand, right? And so then when you use terms like that, it becomes much more difficult to talk about it in a societal and community level, which makes it harder, again, for us to really grapple with what it is that we're seeing. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. To kick off this episode, Fergus Hansen speaks to Professor Manuel Muniz about how emerging technologies are affecting employment, global leadership, and social and economic inequality. They explore the way these systemic inequalities are playing out internationally, and how democratic and authoritarian states are impacted. Welcome to the ASPE podcast. I'm Fergus Hansen, one of the directors here at ASPE. Today we have a very intriguing topic for discussion, the impact of emerging technologies on employment, inequalities, the economy and global leadership. It's a huge topic, but we have a special guest who is definitely up to the task, as you'll soon hear as I run through a very truncated version of his CV. Our guest is Manuel Muniz. Manuel is the Provost of IE University in Madrid and a Professor of Practice of International Relations. Prior to this, he was State Secretary at the Spanish Foreign Ministry, where he coordinated the crafting of Spain's 2021-24 foreign policy strategy and led the work on the National Strategy on Technology and Global Order, a document aimed at launching Spain's technology diplomacy. Prior to joining politics, he served as Director of the Program on Transatlantic Relations at Harvard University's Weatherhead Centre for International Affairs, and he was a senior associate at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. I had the good fortune to have lunch with Manuel when he was last out in Canberra on an Australian government special visits program, a sure sign that the Australian government has talent scouted him for even more esteemed global leadership. Manuel, thank you very much for joining us. I thought maybe we can start with a small question and build up from there. Your work has examined the impact of technologies on the social contract and global order. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, What impact do you see technology has had on the social contract and how is it shaping the world order? Well, Fergus, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here and to be able to participate in your podcast. Well, it's a very complicated question. And I think for people studying and trying to understand international affairs and international security, it's a very challenging question to address because it it bridges the domestic and international gaps. It's very interdisciplinary, as you will see in a minute, because emerging technologies are affecting everything from the way we structure our public debate to how our economy functions, how income is generated and distributed in our economy. Uh, and that has political economy implications. So it's a, it's a complicated topic. And I think the field is really struggling to grapple with the interdisciplinarity that it requires ans- answering this question. So when I, when I look at the international system, I see a very big change ongoing. I think the world is becoming uh, far more illiberal, in many instances, far more anti-democratic. 
And I think that this process has two dimensions. One is external or exogenous, and it's about the change in the distribution of power and the rise of illiberal powers around the world. I think the growing revisionism of Russia is a clear case of this. I think the rise of China is maybe the most emblematic example of this, the rise of a, an illiberal anti-democratic state. In fact, one of the cases of fastest and most significant economic development in human history has as a protagonist a non-democratic country being China, and that has global implications. But the process also has an endogenous or an internal dimension, and it's about the implosion or the collapse of the liberal order from within. And, and, and this is manifested in the rise of the questioning of liberal values and principles and uh, democratic institutions within the democratic world. And I think the rise of national populism is the clearest example of this. We've seen this in the US, in Europe, in many, many places. And then the big question, because this is very unique, you know, I, I think this is, in my mind, it's the most worrying of the two trends because there was never a universal consensus around the world on liberalism and democracy. But what's unique is that the questioning is now coming from within. And in fact, some of the political outcomes within our countries are far more damaging to the international liberal order than anything that is happening at the borders of that order, right? Uh, so the Trump presidency did more damage to global trade, did more damage to transatlantic relations, did more damage, in fact, to the resilience of NATO, in my mind, than any external threat that NATO faced. So the question is, what is driving that? And I'm going to try to summarize this in one phrase, and then maybe you know we can explore other things. But I think that the fundamental driver of that implosion is a political polarization in our countries, radicalization, and the rise of this politics that is deeply revisionist. And the drive of that, in turn, is the hollowing out of our middle class. So the weakening, the hollowing out of the Western middle classes, and we have very abundant evidence that over the last 20, 30 years in most advanced economies, uh, the middle class, middle class income has been stagnating or declining outright. That hollowing out is leading in turn to the hollowing out of the center of our political spectrum. So these trends are correlated and it's the weakening of that center and the rise of the extremes that is leading to this politics that at the end has these anti-democratic, anti institutional architecture tones to them that we're seeing around the world. So these things are connected. And that's the way that I think both the global and the domestic dimensions connect in a world that is becoming both internally and externally to the Western world, far more illiberal. So is your thesis then is that technology is essentially driving this hollowing out of the, the middle classes? Yes. And if that is the thesis, how do we go about restoring the middle class if, if that's what is holding together the centre of liberal democracies around the world? So there's a big debate in the field of economics of what is driving this. I, I think the evidence that this is occurring, so in the US, just to give you a data point, and I think the US, the data coming out of the US is maybe the most radical on this, but 70% of US households so no real market income increase over the last 30 years, right? So 30 years of income stagnation in the middle. Now, there's a big debate. Is this, is this being driven by the effects of global trade and very rapid globalization? Is it being driven by technology and innovation? I think there's growing evidence that technology carries the brunt of this, is causing the brunt of this. 
You can see it, for example, in you know the effects of technology on employment, the types of employment that are being displaced. We're now not even looking at entire job categories. We're looking at functions or tasks within employment that are being rendered redundant. We know that when these technologies emerge, there's a downward pressure on salaries on jobs where these functions are abundant because, you know, human work begins to collide with the effectiveness of advanced robotics and AI and others and the efficiency of those technologies. So salaries tend to be depressed before there is, in fact, outright unemployment. So I am now convinced that the technological revolution is a big, big driver of this process. Now, how we address this is a very complicated question. I think that the world is in the process of addressing this, particularly advanced economies, because the effects are not just through employment. So technology also has a big impact on our capacity to tax corporations. So it's limiting fiscal traction. It also has an effect on competition and antitrust policy. So we know there are oligopolistic, if not outright monopolistic forces in technology markets. There's a, there's a ton of evidence on this, not just, ju- not just the market dominance of big actors in this space, but also their capacity to jump to adjacent markets, their M&A activity, etc. There's another dynamic link to this, which is the concentration of growth in very specific geographic areas. There's something to the knowledge economy that leads to huge concentration of transfer of innovation and of prosperity in very specific geographic locations. And this is also breaking our politics. So the question is, how do we address all of these things? And it's, it's such a broad topic that I think people get lost. But And the answer is, is that there are many ways, right? And, and we're trying to do many of them as we speak, but we fail to connect them. So we're trying to address the taxation issue across the board. So there has been a push for greater progressivity to the income tax in the U.S., to closing loopholes. There's an effort at the OECD right now to set a minimum corporate tax rate globally and others. So there's a tax, there's a fight against tax havens and others. So there is an antitrust and competition issue that is beginning to be addressed in the U.S. and other places. My expectation, and this is just a prediction, is that we're going to see a completely new antitrust policy being constructed. I'd be very surprised if some of the major large tech conglomerates survive in their unity and in their consolidated form in the next few decades because of the very abundant evidence we have of the antitrust issue that we face in our economy. There are issues linked to our education policy, making sure that we do educate people for the jobs that are being created at the frontier of the job distribution. And by the way, sitting at an academic institution, I have to tell you, we have a big challenge in our hands because we we need to make sure that we train people for the jobs that are available. Because on top of having this process of hollowing out of the jobs distribution, we know that there are jobs that are are being created, but cannot be filled because people don't have the right skills and and, and knowledge, right? So at the very least, uh, we should be getting that right and making sure that those jobs are filled. All of these things are being done in different ways. If you take it all together and you add up all of these different policy initiatives around around the world, in Europe and the United States and other places, I think that we're in the process of trying to build this new social contract. I mean, it, it, it really it really almost adds up to a new economic paradigm, what we're seeing on taxation, on government spending, on equity, on social justice issues. So I think we're we're sort of struggling to get there. The good news, last line on this is that I think that this diagnosis that I've drawn very quickly and and bluntly is now very widely shared. This was not the case in 2015, 16, 17, when we had all of these political shocks that nobody could really explain, Brexit, Trump, etc. 
And we're now in the phase of trying to build a response. It's still, it's still dismembered, coherent, incomplete, but clearly the music of our politics and our economic policy is sort of is, is leading in that direction. Well, there's, I think we could talk for hours about the social contract, but let me just ask you one thing about in terms of how these dynamics that you've been talking about, are, you know, you've talked about how they're playing out in, in democratic states. How are they playing out in authoritarian states? Well, that's a very interesting question. And, and in fact, I think that it, that also connects this to the global dimension, right? So this discussion on systemic legitimacy that we are seeing and our debates in, in Europe and in the United States are very much about the legitimacy of our political system. At the end of the day, that's what's at stake. That's what was at stake when the Capitol was stormed in Washington and people thought that the system was illegitimate. So this is not happening in a vacuum, right? This is happening under the spotlights of, of global politics and there are, there are alternative systems that are being uh, developed and deployed. And you know, uh, the Chinese system, for example, that is non-democratic, very uh, significant limitations to civil and political rights of citizens is built on a, on a different uh, set of principles, on the principles of surveillance, of mass data collection, mass data analysis, and on uh, public authorities inferring citizens' preferences from surveilled behavior. So individual freedom and agency as it is in democratic systems is not the cornerstone of the system. The cornerstone is surveillance, right? So this idea of the surveillance state and you know whether whether this is capable of producing results is still to be seen in the future as china develops a, a broad middle class with complex needs but there is a real systemic collision here between democratic open systems and others that use technology in a way that makes them more legitimate and provides them with the output legitimacy so there's a struggle for output legitimacy of the system. And, you know, we need to make sure that our system continues to deliver for people. If our system continues to drive, a, you know, the levels of inequality to points that we haven't seen since the 1920s in the US, you have to go back if you measure inequality, for example, in terms of the total wealth held by the top 1% in the UK, you need to go back to the middle of the 19th century to see levels of inequality like the ones we have today. So this is not output legitimacy, right? Uh, this is detracting from the legitimacy of the system. So that's what's at stake. I think this is the nature of the collision that we see internationally. I think that that's why we're headed towards a world that is much more built around blocks, normative blocks, you know, political system blocks, and, and that's what's at stake. So, you know, there's a lot riding on this, and uh, I do hope we get it right. I think for the first time, we've, we have a right diagnosis and we know what, what the challenge is, so we have a chance to get it right. If we don't get it right, and in Europe, for example, we fail in the deployment of the European recovery funds, and we fail in producing growth, we fail in, you know, in producing equity, then the, the political economy in our countries in 10, 15 years is going to be very rough. And the political balance globally towards more liberal systems will tilt. And that, you know, that, that will lead to a world that would be more distance from our core values and principles. Manuel, thank you so much. I wish it could go on for an hour, but I think we have to probably draw to a close there. Thank you so much for joining us on the Aspie podcast. A really fascinating conversation and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Fergus. What wonderful to be here. Speaker Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan prompted a predictably strong response from Beijing, including threats of military action. 
Dr. Alex Bristow speaks to Elsa Kania about China's reaction and the sentiment within Taiwan, as well as the long-term effects of the latest developments. Hi Elsa, great to reconnect, an old alumni uh, of ASPE of course. Elsa, I understand you were recently in Taiwan, in fact, by chance, at the same time as US Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's visit. I wondered if you might give us a few reactions to to what it was like being on the ground there uh, during that that episode. Well, first, thanks so much for the invitation to join the podcast. Uh, happy to be here and always great to catch up with the ASPE team. And yeah, I, I, I did not expect to spend so much of my visit to Taipei talking about uh, Speaker Pelosi, but that did become a theme of most of my meetings and a certainly quite a lot of buzz about speculation about her visit and the potential ramifications of it. But to be in Taiwan during that time, things felt quite normal for the most part. And that was sort of the interesting juxtaposition between the media coverage, which could at times be dramatic relative to the low-key reaction that we saw from much of Taiwanese society and uh, in the official response as well, where, of course, there was quite heated debate and a range of viewpoints, as you'd expect to see in a democracy, as to whether Speaker Pelosi's visit was important as a demonstration of support and solidarity with Taiwan, or to avoid setting a precedent that Beijing could dictate who could and couldn't uh, visit going forward relative to some some quite forthright criticisms that this was a poor decision on her part or poor timing and something that was symbolic but didn't convey substantive benefits to to Taiwan relative to the potential downsides so there was there was quite a bit of debate and attention there was quite a turnout to see her as well but as the PLA started its punitive and coercive responses to that visit, there was a fair amount of nonchalant reactions. For the most part, day-to-day life continued, and that could be attributed either to the fact that Taiwanese society is rather inured to threats from Beijing and some of the kind of drama of that discourse, or even some of the military coercive measures that have been ongoing for some time in recent, uh, in the recent past and historically, or that there is still to some extent not a not a fulsome appreciation of the reality of the dangers that could be even if this initial phase of the crisis did did blow over relatively quickly so keep calm and carry on seems like the mantra in uh, in taiwan you did mention indeed indeed you did mention uh, china's actions there what do you make of the way china handled this was it about what you expected a bit stronger a bit less how did they play this one So my initial reaction was that China's response was quite predictable in some respects. There is a playbook that we've seen of what Beijing does to illustrate its displeasure across all elements of national power, whether that's some of these trade measures and economic restrictions, military exercises that are sort of We've seen a pattern up to this point of those creeping ever closer to Taiwan and the an increased uh, realism of that training, but uh, that was par for the course in some respect, though the proximity of the exercises and the missile overflight of Taiwan was uh, was new relative to the prior norms of behavior. And then, of course, there were also some of the 
cyber attacks, or to be more precise, uh, sort of disruptive activities in cyberspace with uh, DDoSes, a defacement, activities that were sort of lower end nuisances as opposed to, say, a large scale attack on critical infrastructure. So I'd say the response from Beijing was significant and demonstrated the kind of gravity of this issue of the speaker's visit against the backdrop of a trend where the PRC seems to be concerned that we're seeing U.S.-Taiwan relations and Taiwan's engagement with the international community uh, evolving in a direction that is unfavorable to Beijing's long-term interests. So I think I think the issue at stake wasn't so much uh, Speaker Pelosi's decision to visit, uh, though the timing was was tricky in some respects with the 20th Party Congress upcoming, but this sort of the PRC's attempt to draw a red line, which failed, at least up to this point, one might argue, and you know, sort of a ramping up of prior measures, but nothing that was nothing that was dramatic or truly unexpected, which I do think reflects that that uh, for, for Xi Jinping with the 20th Party Congress upcoming, that is where his attention is going to be focused. And you know, there's actually some reactions within China domestically that there was disappointment that there wasn't more of a sort of dramatic or uh, forceful response relative to the tactics that we did see used uh, for these sort of coercive measures in a campaign that reflected an attempt to punish Taiwan, but uh, didn't, if anything, provoked more sympathy for Taiwan and now seen uh, more more visits and delegations that are planned and upcoming in the wake of this, which is likely not the effect intended. Absolutely. There was some, some breathless commentary before she went that amongst China's playbook might be attempts to somehow force her plane away from landing. I don't know how that would practically ever be achieved, but presumably it would be a very dangerous thing to do. Thankfully, we didn't see anything of that kind. And this episode has sort of passed. There is a still ongoing heightened level of uh, Chinese exercises going on. Uh, I'm calling it an episode on purpose because I don't want to get embroiled in that uh, vicious online debate about whether or not this constitutes the fourth Taiwan Straits crisis. Of course, we've we've been through some some dodgy patches in the past. It's worth worth remembering. But you did talk about Beijing maybe playing a longer game here. What are the the long term effects? Has this created a new normal or have we gone back to the status quo as it was before? So I, I would concur that it's too soon to say whether this is a crisis or the crisis we've been waiting for, so to speak, or the sort of expected escalation that some still believe could be could be upcoming, especially as there are more visits and more measures taken that uh, Beijing sees as damaging to their long-term interests with regard to Taiwan. But I think it is too soon in some respects to say what the long-term implications will be. I think one will be greater attention to the issue of Taiwan, certainly, perhaps greater awareness within Taiwan about the reality of these threats, which was already starting to be the case in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where what was once unthinkable suddenly became a reality that a country had to reckon with and mobilize in response. So certainly, I think in terms of public awareness and some of the concerns about civil defense, reserve forces, resilience, this could actually 
proved to be a wake-up call for Taiwan in some respects, despite the sort of keep calm and carry on response that we did see in the moment. I think there is a growing awareness that the PLA is becoming more capable by far and an invasion that was once seen as a distant possibility is now perhaps closer to being within within the capacity of what the PLA could achieve, though certainly still that is quite uncertain and hard to tell what the impact of Ukraine will be on balance on Xi Jinping's calculus in that case. But I do think in the long term, we will continue to see this pattern of military exercises for coercive purposes, which could be characterized as what the PLA describes sometimes as actual combat training, sort of exercises as a means of rehearsal, as a means of familiarization with the operational environment and sort of creeping ever closer to what could occur in an actual contingency and perhaps in the process testing defenses or creating a pattern where the sort of warning might be degraded because there could be more of an expectation of this sort of provocative behavior and exercises ever ever closer to to Taiwan. Absolutely. I mean, from an Australian context, it was quite a big deal when Australia took away the 10-year strategic warning time that it assumed it would have to respond to evidence of the next war. And I think this, you know, if there is going to be a sustained heightened level of Chinese preparedness across the strait, it is evidence that presumably that could that could turn into a war without much warning and perhaps without much potential to put things into the region to respond. So actually excellent points. My, my last question, I, I think, so if we've got time, is is about what we should do about all this. And I kind of want to take that in as, a, as expansive a concept as possible. You know, obviously Taiwan needs to do something about this. Uh, the US presumably has to do something about this, but we shouldn't just leave it to them. There are US partners in the region, including Australia, Japan, but there is a broader international community that has a stake in this. What, what should we be doing? And can China be deterred? So that is a great question. And I don't know if I have an answer as to whether China can be deterred ultimately. I think it depends on what timeline we're thinking about or whether we are trying to deter the worst case scenario of an invasion relative to other sort of low end options that we could see the PLA pursue, such as seizure of a feature claimed by Taiwan in the South China Sea or seizure of an offshore island. Those sort of more gray zone type activities could be difficult to deter, though gray zone isn't always the right framework here, admittedly. But yeah, I think the another question we have to grapple with is how much do we understand about what deters relative to what provokes Beijing today? And I think the question will become ever more urgent as we start to see Taiwan continue to implement its military reforms, new defense concepts with a focus on innovative and asymmetric approaches, stepping up its uh, use of reserves and approaches to mobilization. And I think for the United States and Australia, we should continue to engage and partner with Taiwan. I think we're also grappling with, as, as, as you said, with, with the warning time eroded, with what, what once seemed distant and unthinkable now becoming a real threat with perhaps greater urgency. I think deterrence re- requires preparedness to to fight, and whether we're talking to deterrence by denial or deterrence by punishment, I think there is a lot that needs to happen very quickly to have any chance of a you know, favorable and stable long-term equilibrium going forward. Absolutely. I and mean, one thought I have is, you know, we obviously focus a lot on the U.S. for understandable reasons. The U.S. is in a somewhat unique position. The Congress expects the U.S. to, to arm Taiwan. I mean, I don't think 
you know, countries like Australia are, are in a similar position. But that doesn't mean that countries like Australia can't be actively uh, helping to support resilience in, in Taiwan. I think in some of these these civilian areas that have military application like cyber resilience, I think there's a lot more that a group of countries, including Australia, maybe could be doing and maybe hopefully are already doing. But uh, I think that's probably about as much a uh, about as much time as we've got, I'm afraid, Elsa. Thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, and uh, I think many of the questions you've posed there will probably be tackled in your thesis research. So we all look forward to that in due course. Uh, but yeah, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you. And looking forward to continuing the conversation sometime. Finally, David Rowe speaks to Lydia Khalil about her latest book, Rise of the Extreme Right, which takes a close look at right-wing extremism in Australia and globally. They discuss how disaffection with democracy is helping fuel right-wing extremism and why people are moving away from mainstream political ideologies. Hello everyone, I'm here with Lydia Khalil. Lydia is a research fellow at the Lowy Institute with extensive experience covering national security. And she is the author of the new book, Rise of the Extreme Right, The New Global Extremism and the Threat to Democracy. Lydia, thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with a with a general question. Tell us about the book. Congratulations on it, first of all. In a sort of snapshot, what's the thesis of the book? Thanks for the congratulations. I mean, one of the things about writing a long-form piece, right, is that you do it because it's not very easily snapshotted, but I'll do my best. Thank you. <laughs> so I think the main idea that I want to put forward in that book is that not only is right-wing extremism on the rise, but that it poses a unique threat to democracy because it's both a symptom of and an accelerant of broader democratic decline and polarization, and the way in which right-wing extremists who call for revolutionary violence intersect with far-right politicians and movements within those democratic countries who use democratic procedures to get elected, but then who undermine democratic principles once they are. And the fact that right-wing extremism comes from the majority community, so there's no really particular subgroup that we can kind of easily target for intervention. And for all of those reasons, we're seeing that this is why right-wing extremism is a particularly unique and I think corrosive threat to democracy. And we're also seeing a very deep democratic decline in two of the world's major democracies to varying degrees, certainly the United States. It's a very concerning environment right now in the United States, but also kind of another star in the firmament of democracy, which is India, which is experiencing some kind of decline and erosion in its, its multicultural democracy as well. It sounds to me as if you're suggesting that the causes and the drivers are actually being sort of bred almost within the mainstream, but within the sort of edges of the mainstream, but then they're taking their most disturbing or, or potentially violent manifestations outside the mainstream in the fringes. Is that the idea? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good way to say it because I think there is this kind of intersection between the extreme and the mainstream that we're seeing with right-wing extremism that perhaps we haven't seen with other movements like the jihadist movement that was the predominant kind of terrorist and extremist threat that we were facing during the 9-11 decades and the global war on terrorism. You didn't see that same intersection with the mainstream, with the jihadist movement, whereas you do with right-wing extremism. And I think that that's why it's particularly concerning. And you mentioned, I mean, prevalent or, or noticeable in, in the US and India. Is it a global trend whereby there are signs of it in other countries as well, but it just hasn't quite crossed that threshold to, to be noticeable? Yeah, I think that this is definitely a global trend. We are seeing a number of kind of structural factors that I go through in the book, and I'm happy to chat about, about why we're seeing this emerge globally. In Western democracies, you know, we're kind of used to seeing that, say, in the United States or Europe or even some elements here in Canada and Australia. 
but also in other democracies in, in Asia as well. You know, Sri Lanka, India, even Myanmar, I kind of point to extreme ethno-nationalist movements growing there and link them to that kind of right-wing extremist spectrum. And there are a lot of global trends and factors that I think have contributed to the rise of right-wing extremism globally in its various manifestations. Can you talk through those? Sure. Well, there's there's a couple of them that I talk through in my book. You know, one of them is this democratic decline that we talk about. We've seen many measurements of democracies around the world show a steep drop where people living in democracies have less confidence that the democratic system can actually look out for their interests. There's a feeling that there's corruption and lack of representation in democracies as well. The other thing I point to is kind of factors around globalization and global inequality. So with the globalization, we've seen a lot of elite capture, where we're seeing stark inequalities between the 1% and the rest of us. And so that's fed right-wing conspiratorial thinking around a global cabal that's kind of controlling the factors of the world and kind of subjugating the rest of us. The other factor I point to is the growth of disinformation. And, you know, disinformation has been around forever, right? As long as there's been humans, there's kind of been that those types of rumors and innuendo and, and, fa- and false narratives. But I think with the digital environment, it's turbocharged uh, disinformation. So there's a lot more exposure to it. It's driven polarization within societies. And another one of the factors that readers might be surprised to hear me say is, is also factors around climate change. So we're seeing a response by right-wing extremist movements through the form of eco-fascism to degradation of the environment through climate change. And what they're doing is they're making a connection between environmental degradation and migration and immigration. And so they're saying that that's what's responsible primarily for this. And so therefore, there should, there should be certain groups that are excluded or even eradicated as the solution to the environmental crisis that we're seeing. And so, the, so those are some of the, the issues that I kind of tease out as structural factors. But I do want to say that structural factors are not, are not sufficient to explaining why people would be involved in right-wing extremist movements or affect any extremist movement because, you know, all of society is living under these conditions, right? I'm not becoming an extremist. You're not. I hope not. Many of us are not going into these movements. So there has to be some sort of other psychosocial individual type of need that these movements are also fulfilling for a particular individual. And I think they vary among among people. But it's that kind of intersection between the structural and the individual and the personal needs that we're seeing here. I might come back to that in a moment, but just, I mean, it's interesting. It occurs to me that some of those global structural factors like globalization, like, or globalism, environment, et cetera, are areas that one has previously traditionally associated with the left. I mean, I remember when globalization was a big, you know, there were there were big sort of left-leaning protests in Melbourne, you know, Sydney, across the world around globalization, obviously the environment movement also. And yet, why are they being driven to the right and not towards some other kind of political positions that are outside of the mainstream that would represent that disaffection and that disillusionment? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it certainly does drive people to a kind of other types of extremist or fringe movements as well. And also not necessarily even that. I mean, many of us are concerned about these factors. And so we might manifest our activism around them in various ways that are not as harmful to democracy, which can be positive, right? But so why is it that that it drives people to right-wing extremist movements. I think it goes back to that intersection with far-right politics, because we've seen far-right political figures around the world kind of stoking 
these grievances and these sentiments, um, stoking anxieties around status, particularly among the white majority within Western democracies, but also, you know, any type of majority population insecurities around their status as well. So we've seen far-right politicians stoke them. And so that's where the intersection of the two come into play, which might be driving that. Because, you know, we could very well ask, it's like, well, if inequality is the thing that's exercising you, why don't you then support some sort of New Deal type program, right, instead of some sort of nativist or exclusionary type of belief? And I think it's kind of that intersection around elite political actors who are manipulating those grievances and putting forward, you know, these far right or extreme right solutions to them that's making it, I think, become more of a far right phenomenon. It could very well change. We'll see. You know, these situations are, are dynamic. You know, you'll remember back in earlier decades, it was not right-wing extremism that was the predominant threat. Even before jihadism, it was left-wing extremists that was the predominant threat throughout Europe, for example, Mm -hmm. in the 1970s. So the threat situation is dynamic, but this is what we're dealing with right now. And just coming back to that question of why tip some people over, but not others, can you just talk a little bit about those, well, I suppose those social factors, those psychological factors, and I suppose how do those vary from country to country? I mean, there are, there are the global drivers, but it's not, it's not uniform across countries, obviously. Why are some countries going in further in this particular direction? And what, what, are the sort of, what are some of the individual national factors? Well, I think maybe to answer that question, it might be useful to do a comparison, say, between the US and Australia. So we're seeing an increase in the right-wing extremist threat in Australia. You know, we've all heard the Director General saying that now it's making up 50% of their caseload, that they're exercised about and and very concerned about the right-wing extremist threat here in this country. But if you compare it to, say, what's happening in the United States, for example, it's nowhere near that level of threat. It has not impacted the mainstream in such a way. It hasn't, you know, we don't have a January 6th happening in Australia. And so if you look at the kind of local differences, say, between the United States and Australia, which on the whole are relatively similar and close countries, I think we have particular guardrails here in Australia that are not a factor in the United States. Certainly we're seeing polarization and distrust in government, and that's been measured highly in Australia, but not nearly the same levels as in the United States. Things like compulsory voting here is a huge guardrail for our democracy. You know, you don't have that in the United States. So therefore, political actors have to go to the extremes in order to shore up their bases. So it's things like that, that localized differences that um, I think make the difference. And India, I mean, I'm interested in the fact that you, you mentioned that as one of the one of the prime examples alongside the United States. Just give us a, a broad sense of what you're seeing in India. Well, we're seeing a rise in, you know, Hindu nationalism through the Hindutva movement, and we're seeing a a very big rise in Islamophobia as well. You know, a lot of intercommunal violence and tension, which, you know, is not unique to this present moment in India. I think, you know, people who've been close watchers of that country can point to many other times in its history that it has experienced those type of communal tensions and violence. But we are seeing a, a steep rise in it. And again, it intersects with that far right politics as well. And so it's being legitimized and mainstreamed within the Indian political class and with government and with Prime Minister Modi. And I think that that's one of the things that's kind of driving that. But it's a national phenomenon. It's not, there's no suggestion that there are far right elements in India that are globally connected with other, say, sort of neo-Nazis in 
Anglophone countries or something like this? Well, we actually are seeing connections between that. So there is a kind of a globalization and transnationalization of it. You know, in the book, I reference a comment by Anders Breivik, who was responsible for the attack in Norway. And he said, we should look to the Indian actors and they, they're an example of what we should ascribe to and we should connect more with them. And we're seeing, you know, more connections between Western far-right actors and Indian ones. Um, we've seen right-wing extremists in the UK, for example, copying and pasting memes originating out of India, blaming Muslims for the coronavirus, for example. And so we do see that crossover, you know, both in the digital realm, but also within networking among figures and movements. And also we can't forget the history of the association between the RSS and Nazi Germany. You know, that's something that's been present. So it's also a historical connection as well. So it's not, it's not really anything new. We've seen it in, in the past. Okay. Just coming back to Australia then, and notwithstanding the guardrails that you mentioned, like compulsory voting, I mean, well, obviously we're seeing some disturbing examples here. What, what's your overall take on the level of threat here in Australia, how we're responding to it? And again, I guess uh, that question of how connected Australian right-wing extremists are to the, to the global movement. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen an increase in Australia, like we mentioned, not to the same extent in other countries, which I think is the, the positive news. I think law enforcement and intelligence agencies have done a very good job of monitoring this threat and addressing it when it comes to kind of the pointy law enforcement end of the thing. So when it comes to arrests and disrupting plots and things like that, I think the Australian security agencies have done a very good job with that. Where I would be a bit more pessimistic is in a broader societal sense, there is a reluctance, I think, to speak openly and to confront what it is that we are seeing and to call it for what it is. Part of that is that dynamic around terminology. You know, we're not calling it right-wing extremism. I've made the argument that we should. Others have not and said we should, you know, that what we're seeing is much more complicated than that. But I do see some issues, and Australia can do more both in the government and societal level, with really honestly grappling and with what we're seeing. And you ask about the connections between Australian far-right and, and globally. They're very well connected into the global scene. Not only are extreme right figures connect to do and being platformed abroad within Europe and the United States and elsewhere. You know, they also factor prominently as influencers within that scene within their own right. I mean, obviously there are people who who are photographed flying swastikas and this kind of thing. I mean, it's, it, it's fairly cut and dry in their case. But referring back to those people who uh, point to the complexity, I mean, there are... I suppose, ideological lines of thought that could be regarded as extremist, but which don't quite fit into neat categories like they used to in the past? I mean, is that is that sort of part of the overall atmosphere or dynamic here? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it is, because certainly these things can be complicated, but also there's always been ideological complexity and confusion you know, throughout mm. history with these movements. It's sure. never been very pure. And I think what drives people, kind of going back to that discussion about drivers, it's not always coherent. And sometimes it can be grievance-fueled more than ideological. So that's certainly a dynamic, but that's one that's always been in play. I think what's missing, though, is that really a deeper dive and examination around a definition and framework of, of right-wing extremism, really categorizing it and, and saying what it encompasses and I like to use the scholar Elizabeth Carter's definition, and she did a review of 
definitions and expressions of far-right extremism, and she kind of encapsulated it, and I think in a really elegant way, which is an anti-democratic opposition to equality. And I think you can encompass many movements within that and understand the through lines between various movements that seem quite disparate in a way that, say, an anti-government sovereign citizen is connected, say, to a white supremacist. Now, there are certainly differences between those movements, and we need to understand them, but there is a particular through line, you know, if you understand it. And we also need to understand right-wing extremism as part of a spectrum. And that's how a lot of people, scholars, researchers, you know, European counterparts, do understand it as part of a spectrum. So if we look at it through that spectrum lens, we can see that there's, there's room to label it as such. Do you feel that there is a peculiar reluctance in Australia to brand things as right-wing extremism in ways that you don't see in other countries? And, and if so, why would that be? I, I think there is. I think you've seen that also. It's not just unique to Australia, but also the Canadians don't use the term right-wing extremism. The Americans don't use that term. But I'd say maybe the American example is a bit different. So they don't use that very broad category that we have here, which is ideologically motivated. Instead, they get very specific. So they categorize them down really, you know, so anti-abortion activists, white supremacist, militia movements, ethnically motivated, violent extremists. And so I think there's merit to that approach, although sometimes it can get too complicated when you do these subcategories. And, you know, to give ASIO credit, they say, well, we're using this broad category, but then we also have our own subcategories. But I think the problem comes is that when we're using that term as the, our general term in the public discourse, people don't understand what you mean when you say ideologically motivated violence. Nobody gets it. But if you say right-wing extremism, they understand, right? And so then when you use terms like that, it becomes much more difficult to talk about it in a societal and community level, which makes it harder, again, for us to really grapple with what it is that we're seeing. Fascinating discussion. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Good luck with the book. I'm sure it'll get a wider audience and make the impact that it merits. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Fergus Hansen, Director of ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre and Manuel Muniz, Provost of IA University in Madrid and Professor of Practice in International Relations. Dr Alex Bristow, Deputy Director of Defence, Strategy and National Security at ASPE and Elsa Kania, Adjunct Senior Fellow with the Technology and National Security Program at the Centre for a New American Security. David Rowe, Director of Strategic Communications at ASPE. And Lydia Khalil, Research Fellow on Transnational Challenges with the Lowy Institute. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.